Here we are, Father, once before, once again, standing before you with open Bibles, and I pray, Lord, with open hearts. I ask, Father, that by the power of your Holy Spirit, what you have said in your word would would reveal your glory to our hearts, that we would take and believe, that we would not sit back passively, but that we would engage vigorously by faith as we receive what you've said. And Father, I pray that as we see your glory in your word, that it would transform us to be like you. And I pray this, Lord, for the sake of your name among the nations, including our own. So would you help us, each one of us now, Lord, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can have a seat. Well, my name is Chris. If I hadn't ha- haven't had a chance to meet each of you yet, and this is always a fun Sunday. Um, each fall, we have a kickoff Sunday where we start our uh, Sunday school and everything, and that's coming up in a couple of weeks. Um, and right now, we're finishing up a series in the Proverbs that we started uh, back in the spring. We've been uh, going, uh, two years ago, we worked through Proverbs chapter 1 to 8, and then starting in June, we've been working through uh, Proverbs 9 up to 31. Now, typically, when we preach through a book of the Bible here, what we what we want to do is we want to work through it just the way that it's written. Uh, but with the book of Proverbs, that, that's very difficult to do uh, because of how Proverbs is written. And so uh, what we've done, and, and we got this idea from, from others, was that we've taken... Uh, all the Proverbs that speak to a particular idea or topic or theme, we've grouped them together, and then we've dealt with one of those each of the Sundays. And we actually laid this out a couple of years ago, and we thought we had a, a pretty good handle on, on how this was going to work out. But as we actually got down uh, this this spring to uh, going through the book of Proverbs. Tim Ferr did a lot of that work, going through the Proverbs and putting each of the verses into these categories. We realized that, that there was this group of Proverbs that we hadn't really counted on. Uh, and this is a group of Proverbs that spoke about the king. And as they started to pile up, we realized we got to do a message on this. And I'll be honest, I didn't want to. I didn't want to because I knew that a message on this topic would inevitably lead into a discussion on our relationship with government and authorities today. And I didn't really want to talk about that topic again because we've talked about it a lot in the last two and a half years. Uh, And many of you who are here will remember how, you know, the week before the very first Sunday that we were that we were in lockdowns, we preached on Titus 3, 1 to 2. And we've come back to this theme and have written about it a lot on our church website. And if it was up to me, I would not have chosen to come back to this topic again today. But we believe that God leads his people through his word. And we believe that the reason, one of the big reasons that we preach through books of the Bible is that God gets to set the agenda for what we're going to talk about. And we don't get to dodge stuff just because of our personal preferences. And so I believe that, that God wants us here this morning and that God has something to say to us. And interestingly, I had more than one conversation with some people this past week, which reminded me that this is an important topic. Christians are not done figuring out how to honor God and relate to our government. We're not done figuring that out. So here we are, and I trust that God's going to use these passages today to do his work in us, whether we might feel like we need it or not. 
So what you can see from your handout is that there's two main sections to this passage, uh, just on the front and the back of your, of, your, of your page there. The first part looks at four truths that the book of Proverbs teaches about the king and his authority. And then the second part asks, okay, what about us in 2022? And so we're going to dive right in to this first part and this first truth that Proverbs teaches about the king and his authority. And we can put it this way. Kingly authority is good. We could flip it around the other way and say, in Israel, the king, in ancient Israel, the king had power and authority over the people. And Proverbs does not see that as a bad thing. I hope you can hear already how this is helping us think about some of these issues today. Uh, We live in a time in history when authority as a concept tends to be viewed very suspiciously. And we don't see that in Proverbs. In a multitude of people is the glory of a king, but without people a prince is ruined, says Proverbs 14.28. And that's, that's just what it says. It doesn't say... In a multitude of people is the glory of a king. So in other words, when a king has a large number of people under him, that's his glory. And that selfish guy should all give them the right to vote. It's not what it says. It just says if a king rules over lots of people, that's his glory. And there you go. Kingly authority is normal. Even good. Look at 30, 29 to 31. Three things are stately in their tread. Four are stately in their stride. The lion, which is mightiest among beasts and does not turn back before any. The strutting rooster, the he-goat, and a king whose army is with him. The lion, the rooster, and the he-goat are stately and powerful. So is a king with his army. And we can go, okay, that's, that's, that's great. But hear, hear what's, being, what's being said here. Hear what's not being said. This is not a criticism. It's not saying, look at that king strutting like a rooster. No, it's just, there you go. God made some things to be stately, majestic. One of them is a king. So a king's authority is not in and of itself bad. Proverbs treats it as just a normal part of creation, which means that it is or can be good. Number two, God has established the king's authority. Proverbs 20, 28 tells us this. Steadfast love and faithfulness preserve the king, and by steadfast love his throne is upheld. Now, if you've read the Old Testament much, this word steadfast love comes up an awful lot. Who is steadfast love associated with in the Old Testament? Again and again and again and again. With Yahweh. This is, this is Yahweh. That's God's personal name. This is his defining characteristic. So when we read this here, there's no question of whose steadfast love? God. God's steadfast love. God is the one preserving the king and upholding the king's throne, which is his seat of authority. Now, we got to remember, as we've pointed out many times through this series, that these Proverbs were written in a specific context in God's story of redemption, particularly here, the covenant that God made with David. When he promised David that you will have a son reigning on the throne forever and I will establish his throne. God promised that to David. And so this proverb is repeating that promise that God specifically had established the throne of the son of David. Okay, we can't miss that. However, in Romans chapter 13, the apostle Paul sees this principle applying in a much broader way. 
Romans 13.1 says, There is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. God is the author and the establisher of all legitimate authority. So this applies in a specific way to the Davidic king, but applies in a broad way towards any legitimate authority. Number three, the king is to punish evil and reward good. This is the king's responsibility, the king's mission, we could say, the king's job was to punish evil and reward good. Several Proverbs speak to this. This is the the biggest group of Proverbs address this. A servant who deals wisely has the king's favor, but his wrath falls on one who acts shamefully. And again, this is not a criticism. This is what a king is supposed to do. Uh, 16.14, a king's wrath is a messenger of death, and a wise man will appease it. 19.12, a king's wrath is like the growling of a lion, but his favor is like dew on the grass. 22, the terror of a king is like the growling of a lion. There's this lion thing again. Whoever provokes him to anger forfeits his life. This is just one of the Proverbs. You want to be wise? Don't get the king mad. 28, a king who sits on the throne of judgment winnows all evil with his eyes. Right? Separating good from the evil. 2026, a wise king winnows the wicked and drives the wheel over them. This is one of the main purposes of the king, according to the book of Proverbs. This is what he was for, to be God's agent in punishing the wicked and rewarding those who were righteous. Now, once again, this applied in a specific way to Israel's king. Right? Deuteronomy 17, 19 told the king to make a copy for himself of the law of God that he might read it all the days of his life so that the king would have a divinely revealed standard of righteousness by which he was to rule. But once again, this truth goes beyond Israel's king. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says about this same truth hundreds of years later, Romans 13, 2. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. So listen to these Proverbs in the back of your mind. Okay, Have those in the back of your mind as we read these, these words. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one in authority, the one who is in authority? Then do what is good and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Paul wrote these words when a pagan dictator ruled over most of the known world. But even he could acknowledge that this pagan dictator was God's agent, whether he knew it or not. And that punishing wickedness and approving good was a, was a major part of what he was supposed to do. Number four, the king should be righteous and wise. Now this truth we see come out in particular verses in Proverbs, but, 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 but before we get there, this truth is baked into the very book of Proverbs itself. Think of how much of Proverbs came from or was attributed to Solomon. Solomon. And who is this written to and for? His son. In other words, and 
this was an idea that was shared with me recently by someone else, is that one way that we could see the whole book of Proverbs is that it is a training manual for a future king. Proverbs is a training manual from this king to his son whom he expects to rule after him. So thus, everything that Proverbs says about wisdom and words and work and wine, everything is designed to help his son be ready to be a wise ruler. So does, does it matter that a king is wise and godly? Yeah. He wrote the book of Proverbs to, to prove that point. But it goes beyond that. Proverbs specifically tells us how important it is for the king to be godly, wise, righteous. And, and it tells us this by telling us how bad it is when this isn't true. 1612, it is an abomination for kings to do evil. For the throne is established by righteousness. His very authority is established by righteousness. So when he acts in an unrighteous way, it's an abomination. That word that's come up multiple times in Proverbs. Something that's so bad we can barely stand the thought of it. A wicked king is, is worse than we might know. 28.2, when a land transgresses, it has many rulers, but with a man of understanding and knowledge, its stability will long continue. This taps into a theme that comes out multiple times in the words of David in First and Second Samuel, is that a king was to be a blessing to the people, to bring stability and fruitfulness to the land. And this is pointing us in that same direction. On the flip side, 2815, like a roaring lion or a charging bear is a wicked ruler over poor people. Would you like to see a bear charging at you? That's what it's like when you have a, a king who's wicked ruling over people who are defenseless. And so that's why 29.2 can say, when the righteous increase, the people rejoice. But when the wicked rule, the people groan. And surely this is something that all ages up to the present day has experienced and known, is that when wicked people are in authority, it makes the people groan. 29.12, as a final reminder, if a ruler listens to falsehood, all his officials will be wicked. And, and that, taken together with these other verses, is helping us see the importance of a king being righteous and the painful danger of an unrighteous king. So there we have four basic truths from Proverbs. Four basic truths about the authority of the king. Kingly authority was good, normal, part of the created order, established by God. The king's job was to punish evil and reward righteousness. And therefore, the king himself needed to be wise and godly. Hence, the book of Proverbs. And that's one of the reasons why we're considering this toward the end of our series. We still have two more weeks, but we can see that the whole book of Proverbs is describing the kind of person that a king should be. So what about us? We are in a totally different time in history. We don't have a king. We got a different government structure. We're in a different part of the plan of redemption. We have, have very different political assumptions here in the modern world. And so we might 
look at today's passages and the message thus far and think that that's kind of interesting, that that's what they thought back then. But this doesn't really have a lot to say to me. And that would be a major mistake. It would be, in fact, to misunderstand the entire storyline of the Bible. God had promised David a royal son who would reign on the throne forever. And those promises were only partially fulfilled in Solomon. He started off really well, but we see that towards the end of his life, he just tanks it all, got sucked away by the classic temptations that Satan uses time and time again to yank away men from the Lord. And Solomon did not fulfill these promises that God had given to David. Solomon's son Rehoboam certainly didn't. And if you read through the books of First and Second Kings, you'll see failure after failure after failure of Davidic kings to live up to these promises that God had given to David. And the whole storyline of the Bible helps us see that these promises that God gave to David were unfulfilled until Jesus Christ. That's what, that's what, what Christ means. It's, Christ is not Jesus' last name. Christ means anointed one. In other words, the promised king. That's, that's who he is. And all of the prophecies that point forward to Jesus, maybe I should not say all of them, but the prophecies that point forward to Jesus point to him as a ruling king. You see, Jesus' disciples weren't all that mixed up when they expected Jesus to ride into Jerusalem and kick out the Romans and reign on a throne. They weren't as confused as we sometimes think. They were mixed up on timing, and they had missed the prophecies that this king was also going to be a suffering servant, and that before he reigned and kicked out his enemies, that he was going to die as a sacrifice for the sins of his people, and that forgiveness in his name would be preached to all the nations, that there would be this time of an amnesty where the nations would be extended the opportunity to be forgiven before Jesus rides in as a king on a horse with a sword and deals out judgment. But he is going to do that. See, the disciples were mixed up on timing, but they weren't fundamentally confused about the kind of king that Jesus will be. Herod was right to be scared by this news of a new king. Herod was right to feel threatened. Herod rightly perceived the threat that Jesus posed to his political power. The Pharisees and Sadducees were right to be threatened by Jesus. That's why they killed him, because of the threat that he was to their political power. And sure enough, Jesus took away their power, didn't he? The Romans were not mistaken when they understood that Jesus was a threat to their whole empire. Acts 17, 6-8. These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them, and they are all acting... Here's the charge against the Christians. They are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. They were right on one level. Jesus had claimed authority over every other authority on planet Earth. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, said Jesus to his disciples. That's a political statement. Jesus claims kingship over the planet. See, we, 
we got to emphasize this because we've grown up, many of us have grown up hearing phrases like personal Lord and Savior. That's not wrong, but it's incomplete. Jesus is not just your personal Lord. He's also the personal Lord of planet Earth. King of the universe. And so Caesar wasn't the highest authority anymore. Jesus is. And Christians were to go everywhere and teach people to obey all that Jesus had commanded. Even the claim, even the statement that they made, Jesus is Lord, was a direct... Uh, going to start that sentence over. Jesus is Lord was directly opposed to the slogan of the Roman Empire, which was that Caesar is Lord. See, there, Caesar's Lord, Caesar's Lord. And along comes this group of people saying, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. It was a political threat because they're saying that Caesar is not the ultimate highest authority anymore. It's Jesus. And sure enough, the reign of Jesus did turn the Roman Empire upside down. And here we are, thousands of years later, worshiping Jesus, not Caesar. So, Jesus is the son of David, the promised ruler of the world. As a reward for his death and resurrection, God has made him both Lord and Christ, given him the place of highest authority on heaven and on earth. He reigns today, and he's coming to reign in person, and this is real. And so, Jesus, as king, makes claims on the authority of his followers, claims of authority on the lives of his followers, and says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow. Jesus asks for your loyalty to the point of death, over and against any other loyalty, political or otherwise. Jesus is the king. Right now, he reigns from heaven's throne, like Psalm 119, sorry, 110 prophesies. And the day's coming when the kingdom of our world will become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. That's the story. And it's going to happen. And until then, until then, where's the kingdom until then? Well, the kingdom is visible in the lives of Jesus' disciples as we live in alignment with what he has told us to do, as we live as citizens of the kingdom of heaven in obedience to King Jesus. That's where this verse that's on your handout comes from in Philippians 3, 20 to 21. Paul writes to the Philippians who they lived in a Roman colony and they prided themselves that they were Roman citizens. And he says, no, 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 no. That's not your real citizenship. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord, okay, political statement, Lord Jesus Christ, anointed one, King, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. This is King language. All things Jesus will subject to himself And so the kingdom is visible as we live as citizens of it. The kingdom is visible in local churches like ours today, which serve as embassies of the kingdom of heaven. Churches are places where we should catch a glimpse of the culture of the reign of Jesus and get a foretaste of what it's going to be like when he reigns forever and ever. Jesus is the real king. That means that each of these four truths from Proverbs apply to him. His authority is good. 
established by God. Jesus will punish evil and reward the righteous. Isn't that what Paul proclaimed on Mars Hill? God has appointed a day by which he will judge the earth by a man whom he has appointed. And Jesus is a very righteous king. You see, we've pointed out multiple times throughout the Proverbs how Jesus perfectly embodies this wisdom that we see in Proverbs. That's not by mistake. He's the true son of David. He's everything Solomon wished his son could be. He's everything David wished Solomon could be. Jesus is the royal son. Jesus is the real king. We have to grasp this truth firmly before we move on. Because the second statement, the second truth, as we consider what this means for us, is that Jesus still expects his people to submit to human authorities even when they're not righteous and wise. But you have to understand the first point before the second point makes sense. Because Jesus is the real king with all authority on heaven and earth over every other throne, that should make us ask a question, well, why do I have to listen to any other authority then? If you've never asked that question, you may not have yet fully come to terms with the kingship of Jesus. I'm a citizen of the kingship of of the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is my king. Why do I need to listen to what any earthly politician tells me what to do? And, And I wonder sometimes in our brains, we still think, oh, well, no, Jesus isn't that kind of king. Yes, he is. That's the whole point of the whole story of the Bible. He is that kind of king. So why do we still need to listen to any other earthly king if Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth? Well, the answer is that he told us to, but he had to tell us to. It wouldn't be obvious otherwise. This is why the New Testament has to tell Christians again and again and again, be subject to earthly authorities, because they've really got Jesus is the king. And therefore, it's not obvious that we should have to obey earthly laws. Because Jesus is the king. See, the, the New Testament never tells us to eat when we're hungry. That's obvious. We do that. It has to tell us to submit to earthly authorities. And therefore, that is what we've been asked to do by, by our king, Jesus. Romans 13, 1, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. 1 Peter 2, 13, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Titus 3, 1, remind them to be submissive. To be submissive, talking about your attitude to rulers and authorities, to be obedient. We've got to be reminded again and again and again because it's not easy, is it? It's not easy. If it was easy, we wouldn't have to be told. Back when these passages were first written, wicked and pagan Roman emperors ruled over the world. You know what's interesting? They hadn't been ruling for very long. Did you know that for almost 500 years, Rome had been a republic that was run off of representative democracy? Did you know that our modern democratic system, where we elect representatives and we vote by secret ballot, was all based off of the Roman system? Then they operated that way for centuries And it was only about 30 years before Jesus was born that Caesar Augustus took the reins, became a dictator, stripped the Senate of their power, abolished elections, and Rome became an empire because they had an emperor. That was really fresh stuff at the time of the New Testament being written. 
And still, Christians were not told to fight for democracy or to go march on Rome or even to go protest in Rome, but rather to be submissive, to have an attitude and a disposition of submission because that's what their real king wanted them to have. Jesus affirmed this all the way back in the Sermon on the Mount where he said, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. That's Matthew 5.41. We might miss this, but this language here of someone forcing you to go one mile speaks to a law in the Roman Empire that a soldier at any point could force any civilian to carry his baggage for him one mile. This is a Roman law, and it shows up one other time in the New Testament. It's the same word in the original language when they forced Simon to carry Jesus' cross. That's what the Romans could do that. Hey, you guy, you carry this cross. And he just had to. But the law said you only can do it one mile. Okay, this rule, how, how much do you think the Jewish people like this rule, this law? Yeah. This was an offense to their personal freedoms, their personal rights, their convenience at any point. Your oppressor could say, carry this load for me, and you'd have to walk a mile. That's a long way. And you just have to do it. And Jesus said, if that Roman oppressor tells you to walk one mile, go two. That's what our king told us to do. Assist your oppressor twice as much as what he's allowed to ask without complaining or fighting back. Submit to the government In other words, even when they're treating you unfairly. You might not like that, but but that's what Jesus said. Do you see that Jesus assumes that his followers will not be preoccupied with fighting for their own rights? And if you go back earlier in the passages there in your handout, it gets even more clear. 38 to 39, Matthew 5. You've heard that it was said... An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who's evil. We often think that this is about not taking revenge. But you know what's interesting is that in the Jewish law, the the right to take an eye for an eye was not a personal right. So if you knocked out my eye, I wasn't allowed to just go here, hold still. No, this was something that was enforced by the Jewish courts. You would take him to court and the court would decide this is what's going to happen. And Jesus is saying here, don't fight for your legal rights. That's what he's saying. That's how the Jewish people would have heard him speaking. He expects that his disciples are not going to be preoccupied fighting for and demanding their rights. Jesus didn't. He went to the cross without a fight. And he told his disciples to take up their crosses and follow him. And do you know what crosses were? Government-issued instruments of torture and oppression And Jesus said, take up your government-issued instrument of torture and death and follow me out to die. What we see here, and this this is a really important point here, is what we see here is the values of the kingdom of heaven coming into conflict with Western Canadian conservative values. See, much of the time, Western Canadian conservative values appear to overlap with the values of the kingdom of heaven. And so we can sometimes miss that they're not actually the same thing. Typical Western Canadian conservative values say, I've got rights. Don't take those rights away from me or I'll fight you tooth and nail. Jesus says, take up your cross and die. Turn your cheek 
carry the load. It's challenging, isn't it? It's challenging. But this is what King Jesus said. So we're going to move on, but let's review the second point. Even though Jesus is our real king, even though we belong to his kingdom, while we're still here on earth, we don't get all worked up about defending our rights, and we will voluntarily submit to human authorities because our real king told us to do so. And this is what the early Christians did. They didn't march on Rome or try to topple the government or even protest the government. They knew that was Jesus' business. Jesus was going to bring his kingdom and overthrow the kingdoms of the world. And until he did, Christians did their best to live as good citizens and focus on the real work, which is making disciples of Jesus. Now, there is a third truth here because it's not quite everything. There were many times when the early Christians didn't obey their earthly governing authorities. Because Jesus was their king, when the earthly authorities told them to do something that Jesus said not to, they couldn't obey. Or when the earthly authorities told them to not to do something that Jesus had said to do, they couldn't obey. If a soldier told you to carry his load one mile, you had to do it. But if Caesar himself told you to stop preaching the gospel, you, you couldn't obey. Because Jesus said to do that, and Jesus trumps. Jesus comes out on top. That was, by the way, a small T, trumps what I just said. We've got to make that very clear. We're talking politics. I don't want you to get confused here, okay? Jesus wins because he's the highest king. And Christians did that all the time. And that's, this is why hundreds, thousands of Christians were, were killed by the Roman Empire because they couldn't obey when they were told to stop preaching the gospel or to burn a pinch of incense to the Roman Emperor. Even just a pinch, just a little pinch of incense to, the, to worship the Roman Emperor. And the Christians said no. And they were killed. Eaten by lions, crucified, killed in horrible ways. Listen to this exchange from Acts 4. Because here's what's so important. Even when Christians had to disobey the government, they did so with gentleness and with respect. So Peter and John in Acts 4 are before the rulers and scribes, and, and they've told them, they call them Peter and John, this group of authorities, and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. So they've just said, don't speak or teach in the name of Jesus. And Jesus has said, make disciples of all men, teaching them to obey all that you've commanded me. So who's going to win? And he, but Peter and John answered them, listen, just listen not only to what they say, listen to how they say it. Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. So you see, they're saying, I'm not going to listen to you. But they're saying it in such a respectful way, such a calm, gentle respectful way. And they're following in the footsteps there of famous disobeyers like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, you big, no, 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 that's not what they said. O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you've set up. 
Or Daniel, who kept praying without making a fuss and went to the lion's den without a fight and in the morning said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths and they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him and also before you, O king, I've done no harm. See them cutting it straight, telling it like it is, but in such a respectful, gentle way. Compare that to some of the stuff you've read on Facebook in the last two and a half years. Quite a difference, isn't there? One more scripture for you. This is on your handout from 1 Peter. Now who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them. I think this is where your handout picks up. Nor be troubled, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord King Jesus, the highest authority, honor honor him as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. In other words, don't let anyone say, man, those Christians are real jerks. Don't give anyone the opportunity to say that. Christians should expect to be treated poorly by the world, especially when we refuse to go along with their wickedness. We should not be surprised when human governments try to put the squeeze on our faithfulness to Jesus. But when we know in our hearts that Christ is Lord, we're going to be able to respond with gentleness and respect. That is supernatural. See, when we get defensive and angry and all worked up about matters pertaining to this world, it's a sign that we've lost perspective. But when we remember who our real king is, when we remember that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus who they crucified, and that he's reigning right now, and that soon every knee will bow, including every member of every government in the world right now, every knee will bow. When we remember that, it allows us to take the world's punches without hitting back. And even when we disobey, we can do it kindly. And that's a helpful perspective that each one of us can take with us into the week that's ahead of us. Whatever is ahead of you this week. Maybe your struggle this week is not with the government. It probably will be at some point. And I think we can see more and more as faithful followers of Jesus Christ, we're going to be running into this stuff again and again and again. Perhaps this week, though, it's not the government. Maybe you're working through something tough in your life, like grief, or you're navigating a painful relationship, or you're battling with a sinful habit, or you're wrestling with despair, or you're fighting anxiety. What kind of a difference does it make in your struggle this week to remember that you have a king? that you're not in charge or in control by definition. That safety is found in resting in the loving authority of King Jesus. That even now he holds all things together and has promised to come for you and to make all things new. What kind of a difference does that make? My encouragement to you this week, whether you're struggling with obeying the government or any of the other many struggles that pull at us in this world is to press into Jesus 
as you read God's word, again and again throughout your days as these challenges come at you, remember who your king is. Remember of which place you are a citizen. Remember your king has promised to return. And I think that you'll find that that perspective is transformative. We're going to take a minute to do that now. We're going to press into Jesus as we have a bit of quietness in our service to just think and pray about this. We're going to then sing a song that invites Jesus to come and exercise his loving authority in our lives. And I encourage you to take this posture with you into whatever's ahead of you in these next days. Lord Jesus, you died, you rose, you ascended, you reign, and you're coming back. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that you are Lord, supreme ruler of the universe. Help us, each one of us, Lord, to see how that perspective makes such a difference as we live between the already and the not yet. In whatever struggles or joys are ahead of each one of your people here today, Lord, and those who are not yet your people, oh God, would you help us to leave this place knowing who our king is and determined to rest in his loving rule, whatever's ahead. Amen.